Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to my conversation with James Griffiths about his book titled Speak Not, Empire Identity and the Politics of Language, out last year, 2021, from Bloomsbury. Um, As you can probably guess from the title, this book really investigates um, minority languages, politically minority languages, and the kind of current state of them, the historical state of them, um, some that have seen revitalization efforts like Welsh, um, and others that might be under more significant threat now, and really helps us understand um, how languages become at risk, what happens when they're at risk, um, and what might be done about it. So this is a fascinating book for historians, for people interested in current politics, and many other things. So James, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us more about it. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, um, I'm a journalist. I'm, I live in Hong Kong. I've been based in Asia for about a decade, um, covering China broadly and then also other countries in Asia. Um, I previously wrote a book on internet censorship in China called The Great Firewall of China. Um, and, I, and I cover a lot of things like politics and human rights uh, in this region. Um, this book is a slightly more personal book for me, though it's, it's still a work of journalism, it's a work of nonfiction, um, but it's because I um, am originally from Annes in North Wales and grew up as a Welsh speaker that I've always had this uh, interest in, uh, well, minority languages, because Welsh is a minority language, uh, but just languages more broadly and, and kind of conscious about the politics around languages and that um, inspired me to write this book when I realized that a lot of the conversation around Cantonese, which is the dominant language in Hong Kong, that a lot of that conversation and the concerns around it were very similar to to those that I've heard around Welsh growing up and all, all my life. And I kind of wanted to dig into why that's the case. So obviously you've mentioned, or I guess not obviously, but you have mentioned two languages and unsurprisingly, the both of them are in the book, um, Welsh and Cantonese. What other languages are included in the book and how did you choose um, the ones in addition to kind of the two that you have the connections with you've already described? So Welsh and Cantonese were always going to be in the book, but both because, you know, Welsh is the language that I speak, that I grew up speaking, and Cantonese is the language of the place that I live and where I would do most of my reporting. Um, and then I will try to find a a third language which was in a different situation kind of politically and um, I guess kind of in terms of revitalization or, or kind of strength wise, um, but had some similarities with Welsh and Cantonese in terms of 
geography, I guess, and kind of culture and, and kind of the way that it was spoken. So, so what I ended up with was was Hawaiian. And that might seem like an odd choice, but it kind of what it felt natural to me in that Wales, Hong Kong and Hawaii are all uh, kind of three relatively self-contained uh, communities, territories that are on the edge of a very large empire and of kind of more homogenous and um, homogenizing empire, it being, you know, the British Empire in, in the in the case of Welsh, China in the case of in the case of Hong Kong and the American Empire in the case of Hawaii. So they, those kind of seem to fit and it enabled me to, to look at similarities and look at differences in terms of language politics and language revitalization and language suppression across these different, very different places that, you know, try and, try and see what's common and what's different. And then there's also um, what I call kind of, you know, there's also, God, what do I call them? Interludes. There's also what I call interludes in the books, which looks at a couple of other languages. So um, I look at Afrikaans in um, South Africa, because it's a very interesting story of a language which was first suppressed, then became the language of apartheid, became the language of suppression, and then has now, since um, democracy in South Africa has become very much a minority and you know increasingly minoritized language there. So it's a very in- interesting story to follow. And then I also look at the fate of um, Yiddish and um, and Hebrew, um, kind of the two Jewish languages, and ha- how they've intersected, and also the kind of what's happened to both to Yiddish, which has kind of fallen out of strength and favor in in the state of Israel, and obviously Hebrew, which has become the official language of that country, and and so so how that connects to language politics and and suppression and things like that. Well, so this is fascinating. Obviously, um, I think. It's a really interesting mix of languages that gives us a lot to talk about in terms of different places, different times, um, but also a lot of threads that are similar amongst them. So um, I think we're probably going to get to see some of those in this interview, Um, though obviously we're not going to be able to go into all the detail that the book does. So I will point listeners to the book for um, all the details about it, particularly the interludes and um, some of the more the history, if there are any of those languages that listeners may be less familiar with. Um, But I want to start still with one of these areas sort of, of similarity, because of course, we've already sort of touched on the idea that these languages are minorities um, in a lot of cases because of geography and population, but it's not just that, right? There's politics involved, there's active suppression involved. And one thing I was struck by reading the book was essentially how similar a lot of the arguments are across time and space about why a particular language is seen as bad, really. So I was wondering if you could kind of break down for us, help us understand what are those kinds of arguments against a language? How does a language go from being minority to minoritized? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that's a good distinction to make in that, you know, there are, you know, thousands of languages spoken around the world. Often many of those are, you know, minority languages spoken by very small populations. And that can be because maybe they're an immigrant language that's spoken by a small immigrant community, or they are a language which has become smaller because of, you know, the ties of geography or, and, and of politics. And there are languages that have been pushed into minority status, which have been actively suppressed. And that tends to happen as part of an imperial project, part of a colonial project. 
Um, and so, yeah, in the instance of the three languages that, that I look at in particular, um, Welsh, Cantonese and Hawaiian, that that is absolutely the case, that these are all languages that are, um, well, Cantonese is, is still in a relatively position of strength, but we can talk about why that's interesting later. Um, but, you know, in terms of Welsh and Hawaiian, they were languages which were the dominant spoken language in the, the country where they are and were suppressed and pushed into minority status um, through colonialism. And, you know, that tends to happen for, for a number of reasons. You know, there is the obvious kind of uh, population change which happens with colonialism. You know, if you bring a bunch of English-speaking immigrants into into Wales and Hawaii, that is going to change the language um, makeup of the country. Um, but also there tends to be a active political kind of project to change the language that the indigenous and native populations speak as well. And, and that tends to have two main arguments behind it. One is this idea that without a common language, you wouldn't have a kind of common national project that, you know, if you want to have greater cohesion, if you want to make Wales part of the United Kingdom or, you know, part of England, which is what they were trying to make it make it originally, um, you know, everyone needs to speak English, that, you know, that to get people to better integrate, you need them all to speak the same language. And that was also, you know, the argument for promoting English in Hawaii after it was um, annexed by the US, United States. Um, and then kind of concurrently with that, um, there's also this argument you would often hear and often read that, you know, that for people to succeed economically in these countries, they will need to speak the, you know, the language of, of, of the winner, essentially, that, you know, if you want to take part in the imperial economy or the colonial economy, you need to speak their language. And so that speaking your own language somehow is a disadvantage. Um and one thing's, and then there's, and there's also a kind of third strand, which is this kind of social Darwinist idea that certain languages are, you know, weaker or or inferior to others, and that that you know we're simply swapping a losing horse for a winning one by by adopting this stronger imperial language. Um, and one thing that's kind of shared between all of those, of course, and and may have already occurred to people listening, is is this kind of refusal to acknowledge the idea of bilingualism um that you know you can gain the you can get the economic benefits of speaking a language you know we're speaking english we can get the economic benefits of speaking english without losing your own language or without sacrificing your own language um but there is this very strange idea that until surprisingly recently um this idea that you could promote bilingualism as a kind of national policy was 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 very rare which is particularly interesting when you think further back in history um when bilingualism or multilingualism was kind of a normal thing and we didn't have this attachment of state citizenship and language all bundled up together um so it is interesting to think about kind of we didn't used to have it that we did very very strongly and now we're maybe kind of moving away from that a little bit yeah absolutely i mean you know with the rise of the nation state in in kind of the 19th century and into the 20th century and you get this idea of states that are formed around um you know ethnic groups and, and languages and, and that you tend to have a dominant language or even a, a single language per country uh, and this becomes a kind of unifying force and, and it is a useful unifying force i won't you know deny it does it, it when you're looking at it from a kind of pure zero-sum uh you know, math problem for as a ruler of a state and you want to unify everyone then yeah getting them all to speak the same language can be a useful way of doing that um 
but this was kind of seen as the only way to do it and was the modern thing to do and 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 this idea which kind of sprung up in Europe and then spread around the world has been quite destructive and and I think has increasingly been pushed back upon uh, and yeah and like you said we're kind of we we adopted this very very strongly for a while and now it's starting to fade away thankfully mm. well so I'd like to um talk about an instance of that right the quite stringent um, application of the idea of one language and sort of how it led to pushback um, and revitalization. And of course, uh, we have to start in Wales for a number of reasons. Um, And there's a lot to get into with Wales. So we're probably not going to go into the entire history of um, the fight for the Welsh language and its revitalization efforts. But I would love to ask you about the blue books and sort of what they were, what they were trying to do and how um, you see them leading to a pushback and a revitalization of the Welsh language. Yeah, so the Blue Books, as they're known, which are officially a report of the Commissioners of Inquiry into the State of Education in Wales, which were published in 1847. They're commissioned by the by the British government, though, of course, there was no distinction then. There was only one government in London. Um, and that this was in response to concern of the state of education in Wales. No, nothing specifically to do with language. Um, just, just they, they were in, initially launched to look at, you know, how good are schools in, in this country? You know, what is the, what problems is this causing? And you know, what they pretty much found was that the state of education was terrible. Um, that the schools were very, very poor condition across Wales that children were getting a very um, bad education for most most states and they were very deprived in, in a lot of the country. Um, it's important to note that had you done, and people did do the same kind of research in England and Scotland at the same time, you would find pretty much the same thing. This is this is a problem with education in the, in the 19th century, not so much a problem with education in Wales. Um, but one of the kind of faults that the inquirers zeroed in on, um, or one of the things they found to blame for the poor state of education in Wales was not so much funding or, you know, resources or, you know, anything that we might kind of identify now, but was this idea that it was the Welsh language itself, which was holding children back and holding the country back. And so the 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 books, when the reports when they were released, were very, very um, critical of the Welsh language and essentially said that this is something that needs to be done away with if, if Wales is ever going to you know, fully industrialise and, and, and modernise. Um, and, and they became known um, in Wales as, as, it became known as the treason of the blue book. It became known in Wales as the treason of the blue books or Bradlethavraglesion, um, which kind of gives you an idea of just how um, violently people reacted to this this intimation that it was the Welsh language which was to blame for all the flaws in the country. Um, and while they did have a very negative effect on educational and, and language policy coming down from Westminster, um, and they did have a, a you know a long effect um, and a deeply um, they had a severe effect on on education and language policy in Wales for for decades to come. They also promoted this this kind of pushback to them, which we now see as the kind of planting the seeds of uh, the Welsh language movement and the and the Welsh language eventual Welsh language revitalisation. So, 
One of the fascinating things about the book is that you sort of trace where these seeds come and then they sort of are attempted and and you look at sort of the things that didn't work as well as some of the things that did um, to help us understand that uh, language revitalization movements, like many movements, are not sort of linear progress um, and are much more complicated to kind of understand in the midst of. And so looking back can be quite helpful to understanding um, other efforts, or at least that's one of my impressions from the book. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us about uh, kind of something that happened in this process that at the time it sounds like was sort of seen as um, an impactful moment, but probably not something that people thought would have quite the legacy that it has. Um, and this is particularly, I was wondering if you could tell us about what happened in February 1962, um, a radio address. Yeah. So uh, in February 1962, Saunders Lewis, who is a uh, founder of uh, Plaid Cymru, the Welsh Nationalist Party, and as a lifelong kind of proponent of the Welsh language and activist on the Welsh language, he'd gone to prison um, for protests that he'd staged around around promoting the use of Welsh and uh, been involved in a, a number of key pieces of activism. Um, he was also a, a longtime broadcaster, a writer, and you know, an incredibly Im- impactful cultural figure as well. Um, but in 1962, he was kind of getting towards the end of his his life. He makes this broadcast, which is called Tunga de Yaith, kind of the, the state of the language. And um, so Welsh language broadcast. And he talks about the history up till then of, of the Welsh language movement and of trying to, you know, what was very much then at the time was a kind of, you know, rearguard movement against, you know, trying to really fighting a, a lo- what felt like a losing battle. And and he he makes quite dire predictions about where this is going to go, that if they continue on the the same trajectory that the language was going in then, that that the Wales would that Welsh would die out, I think he says around the turn of the millennium. One of the things he's arguing for is a more sustained activism and a, and a much stronger effort to protect the Welsh language. There's this fa- fantastic quote from from the speech where he says, "Is the position hopeless? It is, of course, if we're content to give up hope. There is nothing in the world more comfortable than to give up hope, for then one can go on to enjoy life." And so he kind of argues that look, we've been pushing back against um, the encroachment of English and against the suppression of Welsh for, for decades now, and we haven't really made much headway. And if we don't kind of pull ourselves together and try much harder, then the trajectory is very, very bad. And, and he kind of outlines the way that he would see people doing this, which is a lot more kind of civil disobedience. It's a lot more active activism. So rather than just, you know, bemoaning uh, the replacement of Welsh by English, it's actively pushing back. So refusing to pay taxes if if they're only requested in English, refusing to engage in, in anything that the government does unless that it's in Welsh. Um, and, 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 you know, this, this broadcast has a huge, huge effect. Um, it, it really is... The, the trigger which launches the the the, the modern Welsh language movement. Um, off the back of it, we quickly get uh, a, a group called Cymdeithas Iaith, which got the Welsh Language Society, and and they kind of drive this campaign through the 1960s and 70s of civil disobedience, of uh, tearing down road signs which are only in English, of refusing to pay taxes, sta- um, staging protests. A lot of people go to prison for this, um, and, and it has such an effect that um, by the time Saunders Lewis died in 1985, when he was 92, um, there was a Secretary of State for Wales, Plaid Cymru had sent nine members of parliament um, to Westminster. 
the Welsh language was recognised in courts and there was a um, new publicly funded radio and television channel in Welsh. And and so, you know, that is obviously not solely down to him, but it is in a huge part inspired and, um, you know, pushed forward by, by his broadcast in 1962. That was a really interesting example, I think, of kind of, um, in a lot of ways, a sort of community elder is obviously a bit too simplistic, but sort of someone who's spent a lot of time working on a thing um, and has committed a lot to it and yet uh, sees that there is possibility, but also um, dire possibility as well as hopeful ones. And so there's rather a lot of similarities, I think, to looking at the Hawaiian language um, and how close it came to extinction under colonialism but also how it's been revitalized as well. So I was wondering if you could um, outline for us a bit um, kind of how close the Hawaiian language got to becoming extinct and sort of who were some of the key figures and um, how did we get to a place where it looks like it's being revitalized now? When the Hawaiian islands were annexed by the United States and became a first a territory and eventually a state of of of, of America, um, you know, Hawaiian language was already in a minority status. A lot of that was because of immigration, a huge amount of immigration, uh, both from the U.S. mainland but also from from Asia, other countries in Asia, um, and so it was in a relatively vulnerable state. And then, you know, come annexation, there is a coup against the last uh, indigenous monarch, and she is overthrown. And the kind of white American um, coup leaders who take over, they ban the Hawaiian language and they, they, they suppress it because it is seen as, as connected to Hawaiian sovereignty and Hawaiian nationalism. And they, they want to kind of suppress that as much as possible because, you know, essentially they're stealing this country and, and eventually, you know, sign it over to the United States, um, which we should note has admitted that this was illegal and that they annexed Hawaii illegally, but uh, they, you know, don't intend to give it back. Um, and and so when Hawaii was annexed, uh, there was this active suppression of Hawaiian in a similar way to to to, to Welsh, um, you know, it was banned. Its uses was banned in schools. It was banned. Uh, it was not a language of the law anymore. You couldn't use it in courts and things like that. And 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 it very quickly fell from favour. It stopped stopped being spoken. You had a lot of Hawaii indigenous Hawaiian families would grow up not speaking it. Um, and it, and the situation actually became much more dire than Welsh because because Hawaii is a lot smaller and because of the kind of ways that the population broke down and things like that, that there wasn't that where, whereas in Wales, you had these kind of strong agricultural communities um, in the North and West where Welsh kind of remained a dominant tongue well into the 19th century and 20th century um, in Hawaii. And it was kind of being, there was pressure on from all sides and it was dying out very quickly to the extent that when the Hawaiian language revitalization movement starts, um, around the, the kind of 1960s, that they had to, there were there was an effort to to get Hawaiian back into schools and to teach the next generation Hawaiian. Um, but whereas in Wales, it's much more a focus on okay, this is just we're, we're talking about policy and we're talking about um, the legal ability to do these things. That, that there was the capacity within the community; they just needed the right to do it. In Hawaii, it, it reached such a, a dangerous situation that. When they set up these things called language nests, which are essentially Hawaiian language kindergartens, they had to get 
you know, elders, grand- grandparents of, of the children in the school in to speak to them because the intervening generation did not speak Hawaiian. And some of these people were very, very old and, you know, were on the verge of death. And that's kind of, you know, they really did come basically one generation away from the language going extinct. Um, because if you had you not had this um, elder generation which would have come in and could teach these children the language, then you're talking about language revive, language kind of um, resurrection or you know promoting a dead language, which is a far, far, far more difficult um, process than revitalizing a an existing language. And, and so, yeah, the situation for Hawaiian was extremely dire and came very close to tipping over the edge, and you know is still in a in a much more vulnerable situation th- than Welsh. I think it's interesting the idea of um, the difference between revitalizing a language versus um, resurrecting a dead one, because of course one of the interludes you already spoke about is um, Hebrew, which anyone who knows anything about Hebrew, um, modern Hebrew, has not a ton to do with biblical Hebrew. (laughs) Um, They're rather different languages, um, and you detail in the book kind of just how extreme an effort it took to get Hebrew to where it is today. I mean, essentially the entire force of a state, really. Um, over multiple decades and multiple generations. So that I think that really highlights um, just how close, in a lot of senses, um, Hawaiian came, given that we can guess kind of that that sort of level of effort probably wouldn't have happened to revitalize Hawaiian. No, absolutely not. And, and, and Hebrew is so interesting because Hebrew is your kind of rare, extremely rare example of a minority and you might, ex- might argue dead language being adopted by a state as the you know homogenizing you know language of nationalism um you know that doesn't normally happen you know but potentially you know if we if we suddenly saw uh, indigenous hawaiians gain sovereignty over the hawaiian islands that maybe you know we might see hawaiians suddenly become the official language but that's pretty unlikely um and you know and it, it's even less likely you know it, i i don't think anyone in the kind of 18th century would have predicted that oh the hebrew will suddenly become the language of a you know of a jewish state because even even at that time it seemed insane you know that that most most uh, you know the majority of Jews around the world. If they spoke a Jewish language, it was Yiddish. It was not Hebrew, and and so so you know the the unlikelihood of Hebrew becoming um, you know not only becoming revitalized and revived, but being the you know official language of a country was was uh, you know extremely low. And I think also one thing that's worth mentioning as a thread, though we're probably not going to get much more into it, is. Um, I don't love the sort of great man theory of history and that everything comes down to particular individuals. And I think a lot of the points you've made so far about institutions, you know, things being um, what is the language of governance um, and government is really important. But it's also worth mentioning that um, like Lewis and Wales, every one of these stories um, does have some really quite strong-willed individuals involved in preserving um, language, both when there is an opportunity to kind of then revitalize it, but perhaps more importantly, when it looks like there really is no chance of it um, coming back. And so I would definitely um, point readers who are interested in those kinds of stories to the book to learn about, for example, some very strong-willed Hawaiian grandmothers, um, a probably pretty obsessive um, Jewish immigrant to what became Israel and his very determined um, plans for his child, (laughs) Um, among others, to um, think about kind of the combination, I suppose, of the individual and the institutional in a lot of these efforts. Um, And that remains true kind of if we continue our geographic journey across the Pacific Ocean to China, because one of the things the book talks about is 
the many efforts in the late 1800s and early 1900s to reform the Chinese language, again, at the institutional and the individual level. Can you help us understand why there were so many different attempts in this time period? Yes, um, it is a very complicated story, um, and, and, I, and I think the Chinese section of the book is is the kind of is the part of the book where I I had to go back into history kind of the most and and really lay out kind of the the threads of how we got to um, the modern conversation around around um, Chinese languages and, and language revitalization in in, in that region. Um, Chinese is is a very complicated language and language family to talk about because you have what is essentially a shared written language across a number of spoken languages, which are often are very are related and sometimes are not that related. Um, but, you know, so so come kind of towards the end of the Qing dynasty, the last imperial dynasty to rule over China, um, you have a shared written language, so what people think of as, as Chinese when they think about it written down, um, that is used throughout the empire and, and is is understood throughout the empire by, you know, literate and educated people. Um, but you have a whole, you know, dozens and dozens of of spoken languages. Uh, so in the south, the, the main language is the Ye family or, or Cantonese um, language family, you know, up kind of towards Shanghai, people speaking um, Shanghua and, and kind of these um, languages of that region. And then up in the north, they're speaking the Mandarin uh, family of languages uh, and what would become modern Mandarin. But I say that because at the time it was not. It was just one of multiple spoken versions of this language, which use a common written language. Um, and I'm trying to be as non-confusing as possible, but it is quite a confusing <laughs> thing to talk about. Um, and the reason that there was a, that there were efforts or repeated and you know multiple efforts to to reform this was um, the sense that uh, there were two problems basically. One was that the the written language is very complicated. Uh, this is this is traditional Chinese. So this is before um, people may be familiar with simplified Chinese, which is used in the, in the People's Republic. Um, and so, but this is not that version. It is the traditional version of Chinese, which is m- more complex characters. Uh, it's more difficult to learn. Um, and because there was not a unified spoken language across the country, or there wasn't a dominant spoken language across the country, it could be quite difficult to teach it because you're teaching someone, say, to read to read written Chinese in their own local language or dialect, um, and that's not you know that's not going to be the same. That's not going to be consistent across the country. You know, you can teach people to read it in Mandarin up in the north. Um, that you know, from an educational policy perspective, that's not going to be this. That's not going to be very applicable in the south, where they don't really speak Mandarin. Um, and you know, this had really been kind of this had worked out fine, really for for the, for the empires for a long. You know, these were you know the, some of the largest empires in the world. You know, it wasn't too big of a problem. They managed to administer these huge empires uh, with this written languages and with a handful of um, kind of common spoken languages, but. As China modernized, and especially kind of as we transition from the Qing Dynasty into the early Republican era, um, there was this recognition that they they that this was potentially a hindrance that the the language um, had become difficult to learn. It was difficult. Uh, it was causing problems with literacy because it was a very difficult language to to pick up. As anyone that studied even modern Chinese will will know, it's a difficult language to come out from nothing. 
Um, and there was a sense that they needed to do something about this because um, this was holding the country back. They looked at Japan, which had made similar or had made a number of uh, reforms to its language, both, both in a written and, and spoken variety, and had you know outstripped China in terms of modernization, and, and then and then, then on the off the back of that, defeated China several times in military activities, and, and so there was this kind of recognition that you know we're we're losing ground here. We need to reform the language, but then that opens up a whole other can of worms because. Um, you know, you get various conversations around. Well, we do. Do we move away from using a character-based based system? Um, should we adopt a, an alphabet? There was a, a, a strong push for a long time to basically adopt the Latin alphabet or adopt a, you know, uh, a kind of syllab- syllabary um, based on Chinese, so similar to the um, similar to, to what is used in Japan. Um, though they still use Chinese characters in Japan, they kind of didn't finish that reform. Um, but then the problem comes up that if you reform the written language to be more similar to what people speak, well, then what's that going to do for you, for kind of national cohesion? Because everyone doesn't speak the same language and, and they often speak very different languages. And that if you lose this written language, which is kind of tying everyone together, um, will that break up the country essentially? And and so you start to have this kind of twin movement, both to reform the written Chinese language and to create a unified spoken language. And that's from that is what we get uh which is we get modern Mandarin, um, which then gradually became the the dominant spoken language across across all of the People's Republic of China. So now that you've explained the very complicated foundations of this, um, I'm not gonna let up on the tricky questions. Um how was it then out of kind of this mix? Uh, why was it Putonghua? Why was it Mandarin that became um, kind of the dominant language? Yeah, so, it, you know, there is a certain bit of historical revisionism that you'll get, uh, particularly from Cantonese speakers, that there's this idea that that maybe at one point it was going to be Cantonese, that that there was, or a southern, another southern language or um but basically mandarin was always the largest language group in Ch- in china is is the real answer for how we got uh, mandarin um it was the language that was spoken um in and around beijing uh, which is where the the capitals was for much of that period it had always been a a dominant language um in northern china and and so when it came time to pick a language to use as the basis for this kind of national lingua franca, it, it, it always made sense to use Mandarin. Um, there was an aborted effort um, during the Republican era to kind of have a version of, well, Guoyu, which is kind of national language um, that was was basically Mandarin, but had a few kind of... Um, you know a few features of some of the other Chinese languages. Um, I'm trying to think of a way to to compare that in English, but I mean, I guess it would be like, you know, it'd be like if we spoke a version of English that also has, um, you know, genders from French or something, or you know, the way of conjugate, conjugating verbs from Spanish. It, it 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 was always a bit of a kind of bastardized version of lang- of Mandarin, and it didn't take on because it was just kind of more complicated for people to to learn than just to learn this, you know, pre existing language. Um, that was done away with um, in the People's Republic. So after after 1949, when the People's Republic of China is founded, and they pushed, they kind of took up this this um, challenge of, of of creating a unifying national language. They they 
they call it, you know, Putonghua, which is the common language, um, but basically, you know, it was basically Beijing Mandarin is, is what was adopted. Um, and that this was then adopted, at, at, you know, th- throughout um, education, it became the official national language. Um, and we gradually, you know, it came to push out a lot of other languages. Um, s- similarly, I guess, to, to, to the UK and the, the situation with Welsh, that at first, this was just something that happened um, gradually uh, as as children were taught Mandarin, you know, their own language, the kind of local language would maybe decrease in the amount that it was spoken, a decrease in prestige. But as the government started to decide that this wasn't happening fast enough, they started to really aggressively push Mandarin and would start to suppress local languages and um, especially kind of in kind of more border areas of China where there was concern about separatism. This was seen as a way to to really tie those areas into the rest of the country to get everyone speaking one language. So a number of those languages um, are obviously in quite um, dire straits, really. Um, Shanghaihua has not a ton of speakers left. Um, but Cantonese seems an unlikely candidate at first glance for um, concerns about the number of speakers it has. Um, there's rather a lot of speakers, at least at the moment. Um, and it is, as you said at the beginning, um, one of the main languages in Hong Kong. Um so why, you know, bring us up to the present. Why are we concerned with Cantonese today? How is this related to other political concerns, for example, in Hong Kong? Yeah, absolutely. And from a purely numerical uh, standpoint, Cantonese is, you know, in, in root health, there's tens of millions of speakers around the world, um, you know, and, and it's spoken in multiple countries. Uh, and, you know, and, and it is spoken by millions of people in in China you know not not you know notwithstanding Hong Kong that it's spoken by millions of people in southern China um but what's important is that it's no longer the first language of um the majority of people in Guangdong which is is where the language originates in southern China um and it is increasingly not spoken um by newer generations and and so there's been this real shift in in you know matter of decades in Guangdong from a majority Cantonese speaking uh, province to a majority Mandarin speaking province. And that is somewhat to do with um, immigration and population changes, but is mostly to do with um, education policy and kind of uh, national language policy. And and so you get these families where maybe the grand, well, definitely the grandparents and, and maybe the parents will speak Cantonese, um, but the children probably don't speak it very well. They might understand it, but not speak it back. Um, they might not understand it at all. And the language of the household is often you know, either kind of mostly Mandarin or has shifted completely to Mandarin, and that the generations in the future will will almost certainly, you know, only speak Mandarin. Um, and this is a major concern for the entirety of the language because we're starting to see that shift, which has already happened uh, in Guangdong, so just across the border from Hong Kong. We're starting to see that shift in Hong Kong that the the policies are starting to be adopted, and that there is a more and more promotion of Mandarin. And the reason that is a particular concern isn't just for Cantonese speakers in Hong Kong. It's because while there are tens of millions of Cantonese speakers around the world, there is only one kind of cohesive first language community, which is which is Hong Kong. Um, so, so really, there is there, you know this is a community of of, of six six seven million speakers, um, and and which is a lot you know it's still large, but it, it's a lot smaller than the kind of you know sixty odd million around the world, um, and. You know, one of the things I argue in the book is that that 
larger figure kind of belies the actual vulnerability of the language because if you lose this first language community in Hong Kong, you're going to lose a lot of the culture that's created in, in Cantonese that, you know, this is mostly going to then be a diaspora language and diasporas are, are consumers of culture. They're not generally creators and drivers of it. And and so that could have a massively um, negative effect on how Cantonese is spoken around the world. Um, and And so if the if Hong Kong was to follow the same path that Bandong has, and and there are reasons to to, to think that will happen, um, that could have a major a diminishing effect on the on Cantonese speakers everywhere. Um, and 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 so to kind of explain why we think this is going to happen in Hong Kong is you know people may may be aware that the kind of national government, the Chinese government, has you know in, increasingly encroached on the autonomy of Hong Kong. Um, we they essentially um, in the last couple of years have done away with opposition uh, lawmakers and, and and free elections, even to those the minority of uh, positions that were freely elected in Hong Kong. Um, and you know there has been a long-standing kind of drive to promote Mandarin uh, here and and to get Hong Kong children speaking Mandarin. Um, and that sometimes that has been met by pushback, um, both at a political level and a kind of organizing process level. Um, that political pushback is no longer really possible. Uh, it seems also that uh, protests are, we haven't had a real protest now since 2019. The, the legal uh, challenges to that are very, very great. Um, and so without that kind of ability to push back and to organize against this, this is a transformation that could happen quite rapidly. Uh, and like I said, this is a transformation that would negatively impact not just Cantonese speakers here, but Cantonese speakers globally. There are, however, some help, hopeful, I suppose, um, elements of what sounds quite dire in that last response. Um <laughs> And it's worth thinking about kind of um, what is available today that may not have been available or, you know, definitely was not available to revitalization efforts um, in other cases. Um, For example, mainly the internet. What impact has the internet had on revitalization efforts, you know, both good and bad? Yeah, so to talk about the good side um, first, one of the, I think one of the biggest gains we've had from from the internet in terms of language revitalization um movement is is that it's connected people across various groups that that you know in the past it, it was you know potentially impossible and, and also just just unlikely that someone from a minority language in north america would would talk to someone from a minority language in Europe and you know would share um experiences and share skills and, and share kind of stories that with the internet that that barrier has completely gone away and and, and there is a very kind of active um you know kind of cross-cultural uh minority language movement you know thinking of things like wiki tongues and various other groups um and that and that's very useful because people can share experiences they can share tactics and things like that and they can also act as a as a kind of warning you know one of the reasons i was so keen to to write about cantonese in the book um is is both because obviously i live here and i'm immersed in this community but also because I think Cantonese is interesting to look at because this is this is something where this doesn't have to follow the the same um, path as the other languages in the book. You know, the Welsh and Hawaiian we're looking at them coming back from a period of of you know weakness and you know almost extinction. Cantonese is in a very strong position, but might turn um, bad in the future. But that hasn't been written yet, right? So there is a 
potential for Cantonese speakers to to kind of see the writing on the wall and and protect their language and shore it up against against future decline. You know, like I said, so a lot of that is out of their hands in terms of kind of political organizing in Hong Kong. Hong Kong but we're already seeing this um, kind of effort, uh, both online and 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 offline, to kind of uh, I guess denationalize or or um, you know, globalize the the Cantonese language movement so that there are you know efforts to sh- to shore it up and and teach Cantonese in in Canada and the UK and things like that. And, and that that I think is 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 coming off the back of having that idea of a, of you know global language communities and of global language efforts. Um, and another side, from a kind of purely technological perspective, the tools for language revitalization. So you know proper education, you know, education resources, um, apps for learning the languages, you know, things like just, uh, you know, support for using your browser or your, you know, mobile phone in your language. Um, those can have a huge effect on uh, revitalization and, and on, you know, helping people learn a language or, or, or help people practice a kind of heritage language. And that, that support isn't always there, but what's remarkable and I think what is very encouraging is that the more languages you do this for, and you know we're you know we're already at the kind of hundreds and thousands um, stage of of you know support for languages online. The more languages you do this for, the easier it gets because um, you develop technological tools for say displaying a certain type of alphabet or displaying a certain type of character system, or you find ways of teaching you know this type of quirk that this language has, and that the next time that comes along, it's already there and it's easier. Um, and and so with that, we're seeing real kind of progress uh, in terms of developing resources online and of you know teaching people languages and helping to spread languages online. You know, and even things like you know Zoom. Everyone's you know everyone's got used to using um, video conferencing over the last three years. Um, well, that's had a huge uh, boon for for language revitalization because it was often quite difficult to connect speakers of especially really really tiny languages because they're often very very spread out or there were only kind of a handful of communities say across Canada when we talk about um, some indigenous languages and they were very difficult to connect and it was difficult especially to get elders to to connect with with young people who might be living in a city that's you know hundreds of miles away from the traditional home of the community and now because there is that support and there's that kind of familiarization with internet conferencing video conferencing that has become a lot easier um and and so actually you know i said i said i'd focus on the positive but actually i'd I'd say that this is actually i think perhaps showing that the negative case for the internet and technology in terms of language revitalization is maybe overstated um because the great fear there was this idea which is called digital language death um and that is basically where a language doesn't make the leap from offline to online so that yes this is a language that you that you and I might speak when we when we're walking around together but if I'm using my phone I can't use it there isn't any support for it and so I switch languages um, and this is actually interesting this is a problem that we have in China for very very different reasons um, but that you know people use Mandarin uh, to communicate on digital devices even when they don't use Mandarin in that may need to speak uh, but that has a huge effect on on their ability with their own language um, but like I said at the beginning of this, sorry, very long and now rambling answer, um, <laughs> while there were these legitimate fears of digital language death, I think actually the speed of um, 
of language digitization and and the the using advances in AI, using advances in um, um, kind of uh, oral programming and and uh, language recognition and things like that, audio recognition, that the advances have actually become have sped up so much and have become so so cheap and so easy to do that we're not seeing actually a lot of those negative um, kind of situations that that were once predicted. Mm, very interesting, and um, particularly as you noted that um, fears can be overblown. So it's a useful corrective. Um, there are, it seems, kind of a number of concerns um, about language minoritized languages, but also areas for hope. Um, how can we kind of assess that? How hopeful can we be about language revitalization efforts globally? I, I think there is a, a good reason to be hopeful. Um, when we talk about language revitalization, especially, I think there is a strong reason for optimism because uh, both from a technological perspective, as I, as I just said, and also from a kind of political and, and you know educational policy and things like that, there is now this uh, kind of framework. There's this, um, I think, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Um, from a political perspective, from an ed- when we're talking about educational policy, um, language policy, there's 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 this framework, there's this blueprint for language revitalization, which can, you know, to a lesser and greater degree, be applied to any language, and and, and so you know, people that are starting to, you know, you can, you go online and you can find, um, you know, workbooks and and guides on, you know, how to launch a language revitalization movement, you know, how to start promoting your and you know, working to pr- to um, shore up your your indigenous language or your your heritage language um and that's had a huge effect you know that, that that it becomes easier each each kind of new language that that, that takes this up it, it is easier than it was 50 years ago um we know we've got a frame framework for what to do and we, we know what needs to be done on a kind of political level what we need to do um in terms of schooling what you know what needs to be done in terms of resources things like that that isn't to say that things are easy. You know, it takes a huge amount of organizing your, by the very nature of talking about minority languages, you're obviously talking about minority communities, which don't necessarily have great political representation, even if they do, don't necessarily have that much kind of impact or influence. Um, you're often kind of depending on a majority community to decide to to do this, you know, whether out of... Um, Kind of when they're out of some kind of idea of reparations, or you know, just promoting kind of indigenous culture, or, or you know, wanting to to you know share our shared human culture. But you know, this isn't. This sometimes is something that minority groups can do themselves. Often is something you need government um, educational support for. Um, so that is difficult. It takes a lot of organizing. Takes a lot of effort. But I think the framework is there, and the the blueprint is there, and that, and and then and then there's also these test cases around the world to show that the success is there. That that you know there is reason for optimism because we can look at languages like Welsh that was dying out and was heading in a very terminal velocity and is now about to hit a million speakers for the first time I think in like two hundred years. You know this is this is there is great cause for optimism because there is great success we can look at and say this other language can then follow that same path. Hmm. That's quite a nice note to end our sort of global um, investigation exploration on. Um, But before I let you go, I do have two further questions. Um, The first of which is kind of going back to something you said at the beginning, that obviously two of the languages in particular in the book, Welsh and Cantonese, um, are intellectually interesting, but also have sort of personal resonance to you. Um, And that there are some languages that seem on the surface quite different, and yet 
you've investigated and uncovered a lot of similarities. So I was wondering a bit about kind of the behind the scenes, the process of writing this book. Was there anything in particular that um, was surprising to you in the process of finding all this out and putting it together that you could share with us? I think the biggest surprise for me personally um, in researching and reporting this book was um, was that the attitude to Welsh, especially, uh, has changed so much since since I was growing up. And you know, I haven't lived in Wales. Uh, I haven't lived in the UK for for, for over a decade. Um, and you know, you kind of assume that that things you know stay the same in a certain certain extent. You you apply your own um, you know biases and 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 kind of opinions to these things. And and that when I left, you know, the Welsh revitalization was you know was well underway obviously and they'd been underway for decades and i was one of the beneficiaries of that i was among the first generations to learn uh welsh in school and do all of our schooling in welsh um but it was still kind of i think vulnerable in a way and um almost kind of uncool and and not it, it wasn't it didn't have a the force behind it that it does now and, and so in reporting the book and kind of talking especially to younger people about about Welsh that there's this kind of confidence in the language now that you know that comes from the this the, the success that the language revitalization movement has had um, but there was this confidence in it that that I never knew and it, and it really connected me personally to to this thing that um uh, a woman that I interviewed in in Hawaii said that you know she she had been involved in the the language revitalization movement and 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 her, and her grandchildren were were kind of some were kind of you know essentially my generation for in terms of Welsh that they they were this generation that were coming up learning Hawaiian and and she kind of told this story about her grandchildren being mocked for speaking Hawaiian in school uh, and and certainly there was a lot of kind of disdain and sometimes mockery of Welsh when I was growing up as well. Um, and, and, you know, she basically told the story that that her children kind of turned around and said, look, you know, what are you, what, how you, how can you make fun of us, of us? We speak two languages. You only speak one. Like, you're, you know, if anyone's going to get made fun of, it should be you. And, and, you know, she just had said, oh, you know, they just have this confidence in the language and this, 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 you know, some they can't imagine it being any other way. They can't imagine, you know, that the language would be vulnerable, that language wouldn't be something to be proud of and something to promote. And and that's something that I've seen um, in Wales as well, and with Welsh. And and, and I think it's it was hugely uh, encouraging and makes me feel a lot more optimistic about Wales to see how much how far the Welsh language has come. Um, you know, even even in my lifetime, let, let alone you know in all the the period that I cover in the book. What a lovely um, surprise to come across and uh, thank you for sharing it with us. Um, my final question is quite simply, the book um, has been out for a little bit now. Um, is there another project that's caught your attention? Is there anything you're working on now or next you can give us a sneak preview of? <laughs> um, so I'm not work currently working on any book projects. Uh, I wrote two books in relatively quick succession and and burned myself out thoroughly. Um, <laughs> I now I'm a, I'm a full time. Uh, I cover Asia for a Canadian newspaper, and I'm very very busy. Generally, a reporter. I'm about to fly uh, to cover the G20, and and so yeah, I'm kind of at the moment. I don't have a, a book project on on the horizon, but I'm sure another one will come along. Wonderful. Well, while you are off um, reporting on many different stories, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled Speak Not, Empire, Identity and the Politics of Language from Bloomsbury in 2021. Um, James, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you.